Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. catch everybody up, a couple of weeks ago, we began talking about the day of the Lord, and we talked about the wrath of God, and we saw that Paul told us that God was perfectly willing to pour out his wrath, but then we saw Paul also tell us that we are not appointed to wrath, so oh, what very good news that became, because God and his wrath are frightening things 
And it's good to know that we are not going to fall under the wrath of God because the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus in our place, hence substitutionary atonement. Then last week, we saw Paul tell us that not everybody is going to die, but that instead, when Christ returns, we're going to rise to meet him in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord, and then we were told to comfort one another with those words. And so we looked at the various uses of the word harpazo, is the Greek word that means to be snatched away, to be caught up. And we looked at the various ways that that word is used in the New Testament. And then we saw demonstrations that not only are things harpazoed in the New Testament, but that people are, like Philip being caught away. This morning, we want to begin by demonstrating that that's not just a New Testament thing. It's actually an Old Testament thing, and in fact, you don't get any further than the book of Genesis, fifth chapter, and right away, God starts snatching people up off the planet. And all we've been seeking to do the last couple of weeks is to demonstrate that the word harpazo, which was translated into the Latin as rapturo, which is migrated into the English language as rapture, we're just seeking to prove that that's a valid biblical concept. And in order to cement that idea, we're going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages this morning that show that God has always acted this way. This has always been the nature and the character of God. He has a long, rich history of snatching people up off the planet. So then it shouldn't be any surprise when we read that when Christ returns, he's going to snatch people up off the planet because he's got a history of doing exactly that. So let's start in Genesis 5. You can turn there if you would like. We won't be there for very long. But in Genesis 5, we'll start at verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and he became tired. I just know I'm really tired. That's all I know. 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. As you read through the book of Genesis, and you read the various historical accounts of the different people who come and go in the book of Genesis, you find that phrase over and over, and he died. It's the ubiquitous reality of human beings that at some point you can write about them, and he died. Now you need to really focus in on that phrase, and he died, because in a moment you're going to be told something completely different. The end of Enoch's life does not conclude with, and he died. Instead, here's what you read. Enoch lived 65 years and then became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. What happened to the phrase, and he died? Instead, what we read is, he just simply wasn't, and the comment on it is, God took him. It's just gone. So that concept gets picked up in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, And the New Testament gives us a commentary on it. That's very helpful when the Bible tells us what we're supposed to think of something in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, as the writer of Hebrews is talking about various different personages from the Old Testament and demonstrating that they all pleased God by their faith, one of the people that the writer brings up is Enoch. 
and he uses the very fact that God plucked him off the planet as a demonstration of the fact that Enoch pleased God. Here's what he says. This is Hebrews 11, starting in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. That's very, very clear. Now we have the commentary that explains to us what happened to Enoch. Enoch was, first off, taken up. Secondly, didn't see death. So now we know why the phrase, and he died, wasn't included in the biography of Enoch. Instead, the end of Enoch's life was, he just simply wasn't anymore, because God took him. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. Could it be any more clear? That's my question. The inspired New Testament commentary on what happened to Enoch back in Genesis 5 is that he was taken up by God, wasn't found, off the planet, didn't die, because, we're now told, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, that's three times now that he's used the phrase, Enoch was taken up. So what happened to Enoch? He was taken up. I mean, it's pretty clear. So he had this witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So actually, the writer of Hebrews, as he's writing about these heroes of faith, as he is writing that these various Old Testament personalities had all pleased God by their faith so that he can demonstrate that it's not works but faith that saves, as he's going along building up his case, he comes across to Enoch and says, Enoch was taken up off the planet, uses that phrase taken up three times just so that there's no question about it. Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He's trying to clarify it. And then he uses that as the evidence that he must have had faith because his testimony was that he walked with God and he pleased God and therefore God took him. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Ergo, he must have had faith. You get the argument? And yet in the midst of that argument in favor of faith, he couldn't avoid saying, but he was taken up. He was just taken right up off the planet. So you only get five chapters into the book of Genesis before you find the first time that somebody was just taken right up off the planet. And that's amazing. Turn to the book of first, no, turn to the book of second Kings. I mean, you can turn to the book of first Kings if you want, you just won't be with the rest of us. So turn to the book of second Kings, and I'm gonna show you another example of somebody just being taken up off the planet Again, God knows how to do this, and he has a history of doing it. So again, it's no surprise when we find that Paul says that when Christ returns in the clouds, that we are going to be gathered to him, and so will we ever be with the Lord, and that we are to comfort one another with those words. That is not a unique thing that Paul is telling us. It's not something that he has made up. It's not something that you only find in the New Testament. It's something that God has a history of doing, plucking people up off the planet. Therefore, since the Old Testament also testifies that God actually can pluck people up off the planet. So you actually see the historic demonstration that he not only can, but also does. You should have complete confidence when you read that he's going to. Because he's already demonstrated that he can and that he does. So there's no reason for you not to believe that he will. Everybody in 2 Kings now, or at very least 1 Kings, for those of you who didn't keep up. We're going to start in chapter 2. We're going to talk about Elijah being taken away. Now, by the way, as we read through this story, notice that the taking away of Elijah is something that is popularly, widely known. People are aware it's coming. 
And so yet again, when we read in the Bible that God is going to take away his church when Christ appears in the heavens on the clouds, he's going to gather away his church. Of course, that would be a widely known thing because in the Old Testament is demonstrated to be a well-known, widely known thing. People actually come up to Elisha and say, don't you know that God's going to take your, your master today? And he says, yeah, I know it. Shut up. Well, those aren't the exact words he uses. But he says, yes, be quiet. I know it. So this is a widely known event. And yet God does it anyway. Apply appropriately. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And it came about when the Lord was about to take Elijah by a whirlwind up to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Yes, I know that. You don't need to remind me of it. I know the Lord is going to take my master away to heaven today. Isn't that interesting? That not only did Elisha know it, but the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel knew it. And as they were passing through Bethel, that wasn't their final destination. They were going all the way to beyond the river Jordan. But as they passed through Bethel, the sons of the prophets came out and said, Don't you know this is going to happen today? Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Be still. Everywhere he goes, sons of the prophets come out and say, today's the day. You know that, right? And he says, yes, I know that. I don't need to be reminded. You can be still about it. Yes, I know that. I'm just trying to emphasize that this was a widely known event. Then Elisha said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan River. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Why would they do that? Because they knew today is the day that the greatest of the prophets is going to be lifted up into heaven. We want to watch. We want to see that. If I could tell you definitively that today was the day that Steve gets taken up off the planet. Okay, I'm going to go with Luann. So if Luann was going to be taken up off the planet today, Steve would lead the way to go watch. We'd all be outside going, today's the day. Luann is going up. We'd be very excited about it. Well, that's what the sons of the prophets were doing. They were going to watch Elijah being taken off the planet. This was a well-known, widely observed moment. That's my point. Now, the 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and they stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, his overcoat, and he folded it together and he struck the waters and the waters were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. Now it came about that when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Notice that Elijah knows, before I go, ask me for something, because I'm going. 
I'm definitely on my way out. Elisha knows because he's telling the sons of the prophets, yes, I know it. Settle down. I get it. The sons of the prophets know it because not only did they say it at Bethel, but then they bothered to follow so that they could watch. Everybody knows that this is going to happen. So Elisha asks, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah answered him and said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, if you don't see me, then it shall not be so. So Elijah basically said, it's not up to me, but I'll tell you what. If you see me go up, then you'll know that God has favored you with what you've asked for. If you don't see me go up, then you know that you're not getting what you've asked for. Either way, I'm going up. Whether you see it or not is up to God. But I'm going. Doesn't that demonstrate that even Elijah knew that the rapture could be an open thing or a secret thing? It could be a private thing or it could be a public thing. Elijah didn't even know which way it was going to go. Then here's what happened. Then as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them, which means that the chariot and the horses came between the two of them as they were walking and talking. That had to have been a startling moment. A chariot of fire, horses of fire, come riding between them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. Okay, that's significant for Elisha because the fact that he saw it means I'm going to get what I asked for. I'm getting a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah. And Elijah's been the greatest of the prophets up until now and the greatest miracle worker. And so for the rest of 2 Kings, you read about the ministry of Elisha and the miracles that he did. But this is the moment when that transference of the spirit and power that was on Elijah moved to Elisha. And here's the way it was demonstrated. Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces, a sign of grief as his master was taken away from him. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. There's an interesting little detail. Apparently, on the way up in the chariot, he didn't need a coat. And his mantle fell from him onto the ground. So Elisha went over and picked it up. So he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he returned and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. Who's on the other side of the bank of the Jordan? The sons of the prophets who have now seen this entire exchange and are wondering whether the spirit of Elijah has landed on Elisha. Because if so, he's now the chief prophet. So he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and he struck the waters and he said, Where is Yahweh? Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elijah crossed over. The first time, Elijah did that. The second time, Elisha did that. And the reaction is in verse 15. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw that, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed themselves to the ground before him. The first time that he crossed the Jordan, Elisha was a servant. When he came back, he was the greatest of the prophets, so that even the sons of the prophets bowed before him. Now the sons of the prophets just want to make sure that Elijah's actually totally, completely gone, that he actually went up into heaven permanently. So they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. 
Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said, you shall not send. But remember what we looked at last week. Philip was taken up from the Ethiopian eunuch after he had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he was deposited in Azotus. And so God sometimes plucks people up off the planet to move them and put them down somewhere else. But here, he says, don't go, because he watched him go up. He knows that he's gone off into heaven. You shall not send. Verse 17 says, but when they urged him until he was ashamed, that's some arguing going on right there. He said to them, okay, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men, and they searched for three days, but they did not find him. And they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you not to go? He knew from the beginning that Elijah had been taken up off the earth. Okay, now why have we recounted this story? Why last week did we recount the story of Philip? Why have we looked at Enoch, the seventh from Adam, being taken up off the planet? All of that is to demonstrate that Old Testament or New Testament, you have demonstrations of God picking people up off the planet and taking them directly to heaven, which is why when Paul says, I show you a mystery, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Some people are going to go through this instantaneous resurrection, and he describes it as in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, This mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruptibility. In a a moment, in as fast as light can glint off your eyes, instantaneous change. And as I said last week, and we'll say again this week, sign me up for that. Because I'm not afraid of being dead. I mean, death doesn't scare me. Death is going home. Death is going to see the glory. Death is my faith becoming sight. It's the process of dying I'm worried about. If I can skip that entirely and go right from life to life, I'm into that. And by the way, Elijah did exactly that. He stepped from life into life. The next time we see him is on the Mount of Transfiguration standing with Jesus. He's still alive. All those thousands of years later, he's still standing there next to Jesus. And it is the end of the Old Testament, the end of the book of Malachi, that also tells us that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah's going to come, still alive. I like that everlasting life where you step right from mortal life into everlasting life. And that is exactly what the rapture of the church is. And that is exactly the way that it is demonstrated in the Old Testament. You get my point? Mm -hmm. So then we're back to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to read verses 15 through 17 just to remind us of what we saw last week. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is not something Paul made up. This is not a theological novelty. This is not something that he just created out of whole cloth. This is something he got directly from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the parousia, until the coming of the Lord, will not have any advantage over those who are dead. They will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's that word harpazo that we looked at last week. We will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. That's about as good as good news gets. The promise that whether dead or alive, 
we are going to come up out of our graves or we are instantaneously going to change and we are going to be taken up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. How great are those words? We will ever be with the Lord. I can see now why Paul would say things like comfort one another with these words. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of comfort to that. Okay, so now... Are we all in agreement? Have I established for you biblically that the concept of a rapture actually exists? Are we all good with that? Does anybody have any more questions about it? Because now that we've established that the rapture does exist and we all agree on that, we can enter the controversy. Because now we have groundwork to work from. Now we're going to enter the controversial part. Now, I am going to try to keep this from becoming too luxury because the information I'm about to give you can become very dry. I'm going to try to keep it entertaining. I think it's fascinating and necessary and convicting. So I do expect you to listen along and think about it. But if every so often I have to stop and tap dance or something to keep your attention, I'm willing to do that. But there won't be any real tap dancing going on. Yeah, I know. So let's start with some definitions. We've been talking about our eschatological hope, our hope for the future. But in order to continue talking about that, we have to lay out some big, broad definitions. And then we're going to talk about the timing of the rapture. When does the rapture actually happen? Because, yes, okay, Jim, I'm convinced that there is a rapture. Okay, when? We need to know when this is going to happen. As close as we can get, given the biblical information that's before us, I'm going to make the case for a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture. And now you're saying, what does all that mean? Well, that's why I said we're going to give you definitions. The word millennium came to us through the Latin language, millennia. Annum is the word for year. That is why we refer to all these years since Christ as A.D., Anno Domini the year of our Lord. That's why sometimes you'll hear the old English phrase, year of our Lord, 1923 or whatever. They're just saying in English the Latin phrase. Now, in Revelation 20, you see the phrase 1,000 years used six times. And people argue about whether that is meant to be a literal 1,000 years or is that meant to be a figurative form of 1,000 years. If you believe that Christ is going to return before the 1,000 years commence, then you are pre-millennial. That's all that word means. You believe that Christ is coming back before the 1,000 years. If you believe that the millennium, the 1,000 years, is actually a large expanse of time, and then at some point he's going to come back after the thousand years has run its course, that would make you post-millennial. See how that works? If you don't believe that the thousand years are actually physical at all, but are just simply a spiritual amount of time, that is referred to as a-millennial. Because you've taken the alpha negative and you've placed it in front of the word millennium and it negates the word. So you're a millennial. Instead, when you read about the thousand years, you think that's just the church age generally. So there's pre-millennial, there's post-millennial, there's a millennial. You get the three categories? Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe that the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time that Jesus talked about, that Daniel talked about, a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, and if you believe that Jesus is coming back for his church before that time of trouble occurs, seeing in that that time of trouble is the time of Jacob's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble, that makes you pre-tribulational. Got it? If you believe that Christ is coming back for his church 
after the tribulation, you're post-tribulational. I have problems with that position because I think since the Bible tells us that you either take the mark or lose your head, if you take the mark, you're going into the lake of fire. If you lose your head, you're dead. So if Christ is coming back for his church after the tribulation, I'm not sure who he's coming back to get. But if you believe that, post-tribulational. There is also a camp of people who say the first part of the tribulation period is a time of relative peace, and it's midway through it that the wrath of God begins, and so Christ is going to take his church away at that midpoint. That becomes mid-tribulational. So you're pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, or post-tribulational. You got the three categories? Okay, so which am I? Well, I'm not post. In fact, I'm so not post, I won't eat post-toasties. I, I won't go to the post office. I'm so not post. No, I am very pre. I am pre-tribulational, and I am pre-millennial. I believe that Jesus is coming back for his church in the rapture that we have already established. I believe that he is coming back before the tribulation period begins because the tribulation is specifically a time of Jacob's trouble. And so God is going to concentrate his efforts on Israel at that point. The church will be taken off the planet. But the reason why I believe that is not just because theologically it makes no sense for God to pour out his wrath a second time on the body of Christ and not just because it is Israel's, but because the actual language used in the Bible leads you inexorably, if you pay attention to it, it leads you to the idea of pre-tribulational rapture, and that's what I'm going to be demonstrating here to you this morning for the next half hour. Let's talk about language for a minute, because language has definitions, words have definitions. We communicate via our words. And the only way that we can convey the meaning that we intend to convey is if other people agree on the definition that we're using. If I say to you, this is a chair, but you think of it as a table or you think of it as a kitty cat, then we're not going to be able to communicate. Because if I say, bring me that chair, you're going to go pick up something else. So it's important in order to communicate that words have definitions that we all mutually agree on. We as a society have agreed on the meanings of words, but those meanings change over the course of time depending on usage. The example that I used to give for the difference between the connotative value of a word and the definition of a word the example that I used to give was Michael Jackson put out an album called Bad. We all know what the definition of the word bad is. The definition is not good. He did not put out an album and advertise this album is not good. So he called it bad and within the context of Michael Jackson, suddenly that word took on a whole different connotation. The definition didn't change. You can still use the word bad in order to say, don't eat that, it's gone bad. And you don't mean it's gone good. But the connotation is determined by the context. The current example, and everybody who spent any time online will understand this example. The word literal used to mean Genuine, factual. This is literally happening. That's not what it means anymore. People say things like, I was on the phone the other day, and like I was talking, and my mother came in, and I like literally died. <laughs> what? You literally died? How are you typing this out? So the word literal now has taken on the connotation of figurative. It used to mean not figurative. Now it means figuratively. And in fact, the latest edition of Webster's Dictionary includes that as a definition. Because definitions change depending on usage. And if people continue using the word literally as figuratively, 
then eventually the dictionary will only include the real definition of literally as a secondary definition, because the primary definition will be figuratively. You see what's happening with words? Okay, so I said all that to say. There are words that we read in the English in the New Testament these days that have a different meaning today than they meant when they were originally translated into English. Let me give you an example. If you're reading the King James, you will read, He that now letteth will let until he's taken out of the way, which sounds like, he who allows will allow until he's taken out of the way. But the old English word let meant restrain, meant hold back, which is why even today, any tennis players in the room, if the ball is hit by the net, you call that a let. It's a let ball because it's been restrained by the net. So the word let, the definition of it is determined by the context and the word usage. If somebody says, let ball within a tennis match, you know that it meant restrained ball. But the common usage of the word today is, yeah, I'll let you do that. What that means is you're allowing it, which is the opposite of restraining it. Okay, so that's the same way that we have to understand words in the English language as they have moved through usage for the last 600, 700 years. So now let's start answering with all that introductory work done. Let's start answering the question of when. 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What's the big topic heading? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. With regard to that, says Paul. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So Paul is now answering what apparently was a question from the saints at Thessalonica about the timing of the coming of Christ and our gathering together to him. And he says... Don't be quickly shaken from your composure. Don't be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if it were from us. So whether it's somebody claiming to be spiritual, someone who has Gnostic knowledge of God's plan, don't believe them. And if it is a message, somebody else brings you a message, some other preacher Somebody else comes and tells you something. Don't be disturbed by that. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, don't be disturbed even if you get a letter that somebody claims is from me. If they're not telling you the same thing I'm telling you right now, they're making stuff up. Don't pay attention to it. Don't listen to it. And don't let it worry you. Don't let it disturb your thinking. Paul is telling you what to believe right here, right now. Don't be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Do we now all know what the day of the Lord is? Two weeks ago, as we talked about the wrath of God, I took the time to try to explain what the day of the Lord is, the day of God's wrath. Well, the church at Thessalonica was undergoing so much persecution, they started believing that they were actually under the day of the Lord. These bad things are happening to us. This must be the punishment that Paul talked about. And Paul is saying, no, don't be confused. Even if somebody tells you this is the day of the Lord, even if you get a message or someone spiritually tries to tell you this is it, it's not. And the way Paul is going to prove it's not is that he is going to lay out a couple of things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. And if those things have not happened yet, then the day of the Lord is not here yet. You following the logic? Yep. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, now the NASB and most translations will have some form of the word apostasy. The King James will say falling away. Some form of defection from the faith. That comes first, 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Okay, so, man of lawlessness. The day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Do we all agree with that so far in what Paul has just said? Before that, this is the Greek word in English letters, apostasia. That word has been transliterated into the English as apostasy. That word apostasy has taken on connotation. The word apostasia in the Greek language has a definition. But when it was translated here, it wasn't actually translated to a similar word with a similar definition. The word wasn't defined. It was migrated into the English language as the English word apostasia, apostasy. The same way that like baptizo, was the Greek word that meant immerse. But then when it was translated or transliterated into our English Bibles, it became the word baptize. The word baptize didn't really have a definition, so it took on connotations, but it means immerse. Okay, same thing here. The word apostasia has a definition. And it is different than the connotation of apostasy. The connotation of the word apostasy is to leave the faith. And if that is what Paul was getting at, then he was saying that before the day of the Lord, the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. And before that, there has to be a general falling away from the faith. So recognizable that you could use it as a sign of the things that are coming in sequence. Okay, so let's talk about that. We believe in the sovereignty of God here at GCA. Everybody okay with that so far? Amen. We believe that God chooses and elects. Everybody okay with that so far? Yes. It's in the Bible. It's what it says. Okay, so if you have been chosen by God and Christ has paid your sin debt utterly and completely and you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit... Can you fall away? Well, obviously, that's why we talk about the perseverance of the saints, because it is impossible that such a one would fall away. That's what we're told in the book of Hebrews. So it's an impossibility that somebody who has all of those characteristics of Christianity has been sealed with the Holy Spirit, has had his sin debt paid. It's impossible that he would fall away. So then who are these people that are falling away? Are they marginal Christians? Are they Christians in name only, but not really Christians? And if marginal Christians fall away from the faith, that's been happening for 2,000 years. How do you get to have one that is so significant that it becomes a sign? You see what the problem is with the connotation of the word? The definition of the word apostasia His departure. Now think about that in context. Paul began by saying, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, first comes the departure. Oh, well wait. That seems like a significant thing to know. But unfortunately, because of the way language has been used and the way connotation has come in, we have misunderstood what that word actually means. Now I've laid out my case, let me prove it. And this is the point at which it might potentially become a little dry. But stick with me, because the end is wonderful. So hang on with me. Apostasia, that noun, actually comes from the Greek verb apistemi, which means to leave, to depart. 
It comes from apo, which means away, and histemi, which means to stand. So then the noun form of it properly is a departure. So that word simply means a leaving from a previous standing. It just means departure. What is departed from and where you're departing to is determined by the context. The only other place that we find this particular Greek word used in the New Testament is in Acts 21.21. It says, And they have been told about you, speaking to Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to apostasia, forsake Moses. So now we know what's being departed from. You're departing from Moses. But the word apostasia left by itself, all by itself, only means departure. What's departed from, who's departing, is determined by the context. Which is why I keep stressing that Paul is talking within the context of our being taken off the planet to go meet the Lord in the air. That's the context. And then you speak of a departure. Now, I will add, just parenthetically, if you take the connotative value, the connotative meaning of the word apostasy as leaving the faith, that is something that is spoken about in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 4, first two verses, Paul does say, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will apostemi, that's the verb form of apostasia, some will fall away, but then he tells you what they're departing from. Some will fall away from the faith. Context determines meaning. So there is the notion that people are going to fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, and they have seared their own conscience as with a branding iron. Okay, that concept does exist, standing away from the faith. But again, in the passage that's under consideration, the words from the faith don't exist. Instead, it just says, the departure. What departure contextually? Stick with me on this context thing, because my context is about to get way better. <laughs> the first seven English translations of the Bible that would be the Wycliffe Bible in 1384, the Tyndale Bible in 1526, the Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Cranmer Bible in 1539, the Breaches Bible in 1576, the Beza Bible in 1583, and the Geneva Bible in 1608 all translated the word apostasia as departure or departing. They got it right. The Liddell and Scott Greek lexicon defines apostasia first as a defection or a revolt, and then secondly as a departure, or interestingly, a disappearance. Jerome's Latin Vulgate from around the time of 400 AD renders that Greek word apostasia by the Latin word decessio, and the definition of the word decessio is departure. They were very clear about it initially. It's just that over the 2,000 years of church history, the connotation of the word has become to leave the faith. And yet from everything we know about our security in the faith, who's leaving? And there has to be a large enough departure from the faith that it can be used as a sign. And no one has yet explained to me what that departure could possibly look like, who that would be. Who are these departing people? There have been people departing the faith ever since John wrote, they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they went out to make manifest that they were never of us. That means for 2,000 years, people have been leaving the faith. So how can a general leaving of the faith become a sign of the specific appearance of the man of lawlessness? The King James Version was the first established translation of departure that actually changed it to falling away. And suddenly the meaning changed from just a departure, which would be the church's departure, that's the context, 
it was changed to the idea of people leaving the faith even though those words aren't in the text so because the translation apostasy has become so well known the common thinking is to simply assume that Paul forewarned of a falling away from the faith that would be a signal of the appearance of the man of lawlessness but the immediate context of 2 Thessalonians, Paul has just appealed to his readers with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. How did he describe it? The Lord is going to appear on the clouds of the heavens and we are going to rise to meet him in the air and so will we ever be with the Lord. That would be a departure. Yeah. You get it? Yeah. And so not surprising that Paul would then refer to it as the departure, especially after he has just said, now with regard to the Lord's appearance and are going to meet him first before the day of the Lord there has to be the Son of Man come and before that there has to be the departure you see why I'm pre-tribulational Kenneth Woost you all know that I like Kenneth Woost I like his expanded translation of the New Testament I have his four volume word studies in Greek and he renders that particular passage this way just so that no one misses it he says, do not begin to allow anyone to lead you astray in any way, because that day shall not come except the aforementioned departure, parenthesis, of the church to heaven, close parenthesis, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is disclosed in his true identity, and exalts himself above everyone and everything that is called God, or that is an object of worship, so that he seats himself in the inner sanctuary of God, proclaiming himself to be deity. He wants you to understand that the Greek word apostasia means departure. And contextually, he adds the departure of the church to heaven. You get it? Because that's what the Greek actually says. But the English translations through the last 2,000 years have muddied the waters. And so as a consequence, you get people online arguing about when's the rapture, when Paul was very precise about it in the language he chose to use. Now, there's this tremendous continuity between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4. But there's also this similar consistency as Paul continues his argument in this chapter. In verses 3 and 4, we read that first comes the departure then the man of lawlessness is revealed, who then sets himself up in the temple, showing himself that he's God. That's the order. First the departure, man of lawlessness, day of the Lord. Turn to 2 Thessalonians, all of you, because I do want you to see this, and I want you to see the similarities. In verse 5, Paul goes on and reminds his readers that he had told them these things when he was actually present among them. So then in verses 6 to 8, he forms another chronos, another timeline, another set of events that are going to happen in a particular order. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. And you know what now restrains him so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Okay, that's first event. Restrainer taken. That's event one. What happens after the restrainer is taken? And then the lawless one will be revealed. Oh, okay, so then the lawless one, that'd be the man of lawlessness, is revealed. Man, O oh, lawless. That's the name we're giving him now. That's exactly correlating to that right there. Whom the Lord shall slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's the day of the Lord. Which exactly correlates with that. So what we have here is correlation on day of the Lord. Before that, man of lawlessness. Before that, the apostasia and the taking away of the restraining force. What are the chances that the taking away of the restrainer and the departure are two different things? Instead, what's obvious is Paul is talking about the exact same thing. 
because they both occur just before the man of lawlessness comes. And he says it back to back, and it's all in the context of the return of our Lord and our gathering to him. So never forget the overarching context. The overarching context defines our departure, the man of lawlessness coming, the day of the Lord coming, and you know what is restraining that man of lawlessness now so that he may be revealed in his time, the particular moment, the particular time when God has chosen to reveal him. That mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but he's not openly known because there's something restraining him. And he who now restrains him will continue to restrain him until he is, look at that language, taken away. How often have we seen that language? Until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawlessness will be revealed, step two in both instances, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's day of the Lord stuff. That's number three in both sequences. So what are the chances? that apostasia and the taking away of the restrainer are the exact same thing. That's the way Paul has laid it out. In each case, the man of lawlessness is revealed after the departure or the removal of the restrainer. As we saw before, the most direct referent to the departure is the gathering of the church that's mentioned in verses 1 and 2. In that case, the departure of the church is synonymous with the removal of the restraint that is holding the mystery of lawlessness at bay until his appropriate time. That context is very, very consistent. So much so that Kenneth Woost says this. Am I too luxury yet? No. Are you tired of this yet? No. Okay. Is this encouraging to you? It should be. I like it. I don't even care if you don't like it. (laughs) This is exciting to me. Kenneth Wu said, the English word departure certainly fits the context. It is coherent. It fits the context of 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 8. Most post-tribulational theologians refuse to address the entire context as it is given and thus insist that the lexical evidence does not suggest a physical departure. But that is exactly what the lexical evidence does suggest. Dismissing the obvious coherence of this passage would be simple ignorance or a stubborn refusal to consider the scriptural evidence. Remember, if we take a word out of context and apply a dissimilar meaning, then we've created a new pretext. Likely that has happened in the translation of the King James Version and later versions. So... Let me summarize, and if you've got this, then you've got everything I was going to try to get to this morning so that you have some sense not only that the departure has to happen, that the catching away, that the harpazo has to occur, and that it is biblically consistent, Old or New Testament, but you also have some sense of when it has to happen. It has to happen before the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's said twice. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed before the day of the Lord and before the return of Christ in judgment and the wrath of God. That is consistent. And the only thing we know for sure is that the word apostasia means departure. What is departed from is determined by the context, and the context is our meeting the Lord in the air. I don't know how to make it more clear than that. When we read the phrase, It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Paul is actually telling us that there will be a departure prior to the man of sin being revealed. That's pre-tribulation. You can't do anything about that. To conclude that the departure that Paul is referencing is some kind of departure from the faith is to read into Paul's words meaning that he didn't intend. Who is departing and what they are departing from is established by the larger context. Remember that the primary point of Paul's treatise 
is to unify his audience around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. First, he assured them that they should not be persuaded by any means that the day of the Lord was at hand. And as his first proof, he reminded them that that day could not come unless first there was a departure and then the man of sin would be revealed. The object of the apostasia then can only be the church as it departs to meet the Lord in the air, removing the restraint that was keeping the mystery of the lawless man at bay until his appointed time. You got it? it. I find it exciting. Because, see, I am not pre-tribulational and pre-millennial because Darby was. That's often what gets thrown at us. I, I don't care about the ecstatic utterances of a teenage girl at the end of the 19th century. Bible. I'm interested in what the Bible says and what the Bible plainly tells us is that the rapture of the church, the gathering together of the church, has to occur before the man of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness establishes his seven-year peace pact with Israel, and that's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. So that means we have to be gone before that happens. And that makes me say, yippee! Yay! Because I'm all for the getting out of here thing. Sign me up. She threw things in the air. She was so excited. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.